Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the final episode of 2020 here on the Legends of the Old West podcast. This is my annual conversation with New York Times best-selling author Craig Johnson about his newest novel. Candidly, we weren't sure it was going to happen this year, but we were able to squeeze in a remote recording. So the audio quality will be a little different this time around, which is just the way the world is right now. But as always, Craig has fun stories to tell and I hope you enjoy them. Here's our discussion of the next installment in the Walt Longmire mystery series called Next to Last Stand. Craig, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for coming back on. This is our third interview about a book, fourth interview overall, I believe. So I appreciate you coming back. Thank you. My pleasure. Absolutely. Good. Uh, wonderful to be here. <laughs> yeah. And typically, as we were just talking about, we've done these the previous two interviews at the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale. As you're beginning your book tour, that's obviously not happening, a physical in-person <laughs> tour this year. Like we were just talking about, you're doing a lot of virtual interviews. We are doing this one through the miracle of the World Wide Webs. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time. We got our technology figured out. We're ready to go here. Oh, my pleasure. Like I'm getting a lot of writing done and a lot of work here at the I, ranch, too. So I was about to say, good. yeah. Well, that, that's actually what I, <laughs> one I wanted to follow up on. That our, In our previous interview, you had mentioned, and I think this has made it into the last couple books, that you were also spending some time renovating a cabin. Uh, so I, I want to am. check on cabin renovation. Has, has is cabin I renovation am. progressing? Well, it had to like that because the, the cabin itself is up around 8,000 feet. Like it, and so if I didn't get it done quick, um, right. the winter was going to close off the opportunity. My, my, my window of opportunity was rapidly closing. And so, yes, I did get the majority of the work done. It's not completely finished, but, you know, that's just pretty much the same as it is with the books. You never really finish a book. It just hits a deadline and they take it away from you. I was going to say, it feels like you, you actually work really quickly though so by the time we actually have this conversation you're well down the road on the next book um, so I'm sure we'll, we'll get we'll get to that at the very end as we normally do uh, but now we'll actually jump into uh to your newest book here so i want to you teased it a year ago when we were talking about this so i guess i want to ask a question that i'm sure you're going to get variations of as you're doing the media blitz but what made the the painting of custer's last fight so interesting to you that you wanted to make it the centerpiece of, a, of an entire novel 
Well, I mean, the, 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 the little bighorn battlefield is only about 90 minutes up the road um, from my ranch where I'm speaking to you now. Uh, and you cross Wyoming, population 25. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those mountains I had yet to climb. Like it was one of those things where I thought, OK, inevitably, I'm going to have a storyline that will have something to do, you know, with the little bighorn because it's just too much of an opportunity like that. I mean, it's one of those places like, you know, I mean, the old joke in New York is, I guess, that nobody ever goes out to the Statue of Liberty until they get relative like that or people from out of town who come into town like that. and it's pretty much the same way with the little bighorn i mean you go driving by it on i-90 all the time but you know i've been up there a couple of times like that but you know whenever anybody comes in from you know other countries or you know from other parts of the country and things like that they they, they like to go up and see the battlefield and it's truly an amazing place i mean it you you definitely get a sense that you know that it's it's haunted there, there's no other word for it um that something something epic, you know, happened here. And then the question becomes, okay, well, yeah, you can use it, you know, as a, as a you know, plot point in your storyline or something, but why do it if you're not going to discover something new and something different, you know, that maybe readers are not aware of? And so, you know, what I decided was is that, you know, Everybody, you know, knows the painting. I can just about guarantee that the majority of your listeners, like that, if they if they don't know the name of the artist, Cassili Adams, they know his work, like that, and uh, they know it because it's sometimes referred to Custer's Last Fight or sometimes the Budweiser painting. Um, the reason being, of course, that you know after you know it hung uh, on a saloon wall in St. Louis, you know, for a number of years. Um, that went out of business and they owed uh, Budweiser money. Augie Bush went down there and collected the painting off of the wall, rolled it up under his arm and went back up to his brewery like it and rolled it out for his marketing guys and said, okay, um, you know, we're going to make posters of this painting and we're going to send them out to every restaurant, every saloon, every bar all over America, everybody that sells Budweiser beer. By the time we're done with this, we are going to be a lot bigger brewery. And boy, did it work. Um, with a vengeance, it worked like that. And so, You've seen it. I know people have seen it, like it hanging in the bars and saloons and everywhere else. Like it, and I just decided, okay, well, wonder what the story is on that painting anyway. So I started doing a little bit of research and discovered that the history of that painting is almost as dramatic as the historic moment that it uh, displays. And uh, and so I decided, you know what, that may be my access point to the little big one. Great, yeah. And I, and I, as you just said, if people who, if if a, if a listener, if someone's listening right now and they can't picture it in their minds, I guarantee if you run to the internet and you look it up, you will have seen it, whether in person, hanging above an actual bar, or in something like in a book, or you know, referenced in a movie or something, you will have seen the, the the painting in some form or fashion. So you're absolutely right. And what an amazing PR campaign! Um, <laughs> if anyone's ever going to bring something like that back again. Well, and um, then the fact that, like, you know, that there are some controversies, you know, involved with the painting. Like, at first of all, you know, that, you know, that it was uh, given as a gift, you know, back to the 7th Cavalry, like in the 30s um, and hung, you know, in uh, their uh, headquarters in Fort Bliss, Texas, like at, um, until in 1946 when the commissary burned to the ground and the painting was destroyed. Like that. But of course, you know, in my version, the question becomes, was it destroyed or, you know, did something else happen to that painting? Sure. And uh, then, of course, you know, the difficulty it is, you know, well, how do you get, you know, the sheriff of the least populated county and the least populated state involved, you know, as investigation in this? And so it's it's very joyful for me, like at, to point out on Veterans Day that um, just outside of Buffalo, which is, you know, the I guess the model for Durant in the books, the county seat of our fictitious county, Absaroka, is uh, Fort McKinney 
which was actually built in response to the Little Bighorn uh, massacre, like that, in the sense that you know a lot of communities here in the High Plains they felt at that period in time that you know there were going to be uprisings, you know that there were going to be uh, Indian uprisings like that, and so they needed protection, they needed forts, and so a lot of them prescribed that thought, and the federal government responded, and so the one that was built just outside of Buffalo was Fort McKinney. Well, over the years they figured out that yeah there probably weren't going to be any you know great uprisings like that, that it was pretty much the end of that period in time. like And so in 1903, the federal government sold Fort McKinney to the state of Wyoming, and they turned it into the Soldier and Sailor's Home, which became the Wyoming Veterans Home. And uh, ever since, you know, when I first built my ranch, you know, 20 years ago, um, I would drive by the Veterans Home and those guys would be out there, some of the veterans, you know, and these would be guys that were veterans of World War II, of Korea, of Vietnam, you know, and they would have incredible stories. And, you know, I have, you know, I have a weakness. Like whenever I think somebody has a story, you know, it's always grist for the mill. I'm always looking forward to have the opportunity, you know, to be able to, to hear some of those stories. So I would pull up with my pickup truck and back in there and drop the tailgate and just sit there and talk to those guys. Well, yeah, you, you actually... You hit on something that was going to be a question and something that I had already assumed since we've done a few of these interviews now. I assumed that the characters you refer to collectively as the waivers were based on real gentlemen who probably lived at this home. And so I, I had to assume that was the case. And now hearing you talk about it, clearly a lot of the stuff that Walt experiences on the mundane side of things or just the fun personal <laughs> side of things were inspired by your real experiences, pulling up to the home and seeing these real people. So we're were there, how closely are the characters in the book portrayed from the real life guys? Are there actually guys out there in, in wheelchairs waving at the at traffic like people are going to see in the book? Oh, absolutely. I always live in fear, you know, and whenever um, anybody <clears throat> might come, you know, to my portion of the world and actually see what it's really like. Um, they're going to come to the conclusion that, you know, well, Craig Johnson is not really that good of an author. He just knows lots of interesting people, like in that little, little corner of the world in which he lives. Like, and, uh, you know, that's okay. Like it. I mean, you know, one of my favorite quotes is the one from Wallace Stegner, where he talks about uh, the fact that uh, you know <clears throat> the greatest uh, the greatest piece of fiction ever written is the disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off of anybody alive or dead, and that that's a crock, you know, that, uh, that's your job is to go find interesting people, you know, and put them in your books. And so for me, that's one of the joys like it is being able to include those stories that, you know, sorrowfully like, you know, are, are going to be lost, you know, an awful lot of those individuals, those voices are going to be gone and they take a lot of those stories with them. And so for me, it's a wonderful opportunity to kind of include them and maybe preserve them, you know, for the future. Yeah, I and mean, I'm one of the few, well, I don't know if it's few, but I'm one of the people who's been fortunate enough to be up in that area, though I haven't spent a ton of time in Buffalo itself. I've driven through that corridor I'm on the way to from Deadwood to Billings when we first met at the Western Writers Convention a few years ago when you were there with A. Martinez. So I got uh -huh. to see some of that area, uh, but I haven't spent a ton of time there. But I think anybody who's able to make the pilgrimage would see would recognize that you do have some fascinating people in a very small corner of the of the world and i think we're all thrilled that they get to make appearances in these books um so we can we, i suppose we're all waiting for whoever the next inspiring character is going to be <laughs> uh, who's going to show up in, in next year's book 
Well, and that's that's part of the joy of like working with a you know an ensemble of characters, like you know because you know writing a novel in many ways is kind of like conducting a choral group, and you're going to have to pick and choose, you know, which uh, voices are going to illustrate that and tell that story, you know, to its best advantage. Like, and so I knew that this book was going to have a very strong native, uh, you know, um, aspect to it, like that, you know, that there was going to be an awful lot of the native characters that were going to come rushing back in, um, and so that's kind of a joy. I mean, it was a joy to get Lonnie Littlebird, you know, back uh, yes. in the involved. Like, at to get um, Barrett Long, like at uh, Lolo Long, the, the the tribal police chief's, you know, brother, back involved. Like at and uh, and to see, you know, the response also. I guess the cultural kind of antagonism a little bit, you know, the controversy maybe rather than antagonism you know, between Henry uh, Standing Bear and Walt. You know, <clears throat> I mean, Walt kind of voices you know, a lot of, you know, what he'd learned about the Little Bighorn from the textbooks, you know, that he sure. read when he was a child like that. And uh, as we've come to learn, you know, over the the, the, the decades, you know, the centuries like it, well, you know, maybe those textbooks had a little bit of a, a spin to them. You know, they might not have been completely, you know, truthful in their uh, portrayal of the situation and maybe left out some details maybe that nobody knew about either, like that, which have kind of come to light here as of late, you know, because of the marvelous um, writers that are suddenly writing a lot of historical uh, works these days. You know, I was just doing an interview with Nathaniel Philbrick um, and his book, The Last oh, Stand, great. here just, you know, last week. Like, and and uh, it was stunning, like, to find out, you know, the information that's been discovered in the last, like, say, even 10 years um, about the battlefield and the battle itself. Right, right, of course. Yeah, and that's and that's that somewhat leads into a question that I wanted to ask as one that we spoke about that I'm going to talk about obliquely in some of the artifacts that do make an appearance that are related to the battle that I, and I, you're kind of talking about it as well, that it, it feels like when you go to the battlefield, you have that haunting sensation and you, and there's, it takes on a different level than if you just simply talk about it or if you read about it or you see pictures or videos or whatever it, when you're writing about it and writing about some of these artifacts that make an appearance, do you feel a sense of transportation back to that time? Like as, as I was, listening to George Guadel's audiobook as I was going through this really fast, I started smiling and think, God, that must have been fun to write about these things. You must have, <laughs> I, I felt a little sense of transportation back to that time. I could almost feel a little bit of fun hearing it. So I had to imagine you felt some kind of sense of, of transportation and fun and maybe some of that mythical quality thrown in as well. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, you know, you, you know, as well as I do, that that's why we read um, is to be transported, you know, back to those periods and to know about those things that, you know, time periods like and experiences that we may never have in our lives like that. But reading about them brings them about as close as they can possibly be. For me, you know, one of the excitements was, is, you know, like I, I was discussing some of those, you know, the history books that I've read and the research on this book started like almost eight years ago. And the reason I know exactly when it was that I started doing the research on this particular book was, is there's an episode of Longmire then on the, the television show on uh, Netflix that um, actually uses um, the painting as one of the subplots. And I had to laugh about it like that because I had a number of people who, after they read the book, said, well, did you get the idea, you know, from the television series episode? And I was like, no, that was when I told the producers about the book that I was doing research on. A lot of research went into this book. Like that. But then um, the fun thing was is to also like give credibility, like and not, maybe not credibility, like but give credence to um, the native voices like that because it wasn't just a one-sided battle. 
you know, it wasn't just the Seventh Cavalry that was involved in this particular battle. You know, there was a nomadic people. One of the things I think that a lot of people tend to forget is that um, this was not two uh, two uh, armies on a battlefield. This was one uh, expeditionary force pursuing a nomadic people that you know were a, a grouping of people that were the size of a good sized city. Um, you know, this was like close to ten thousand, uh, both Lakota and uh, Cheyenne peoples there. Like, and so they had uh, not only the warriors that were there, but they also had their wives, their children, the elderly. You know, their entire families were all there. And I guess when you look back at it, you can say to yourself, "Well, what an incredible, um, you know, uh, inconvenience, like at a difficulty to have your loved ones right there on the battlefield with you, like that, because you realize that you're going to have to protect them, that you're going to have to save them." Um, but then the other side of that coin is, is that I can't imagine anything that would be more motivating um, than having your loved ones behind you like that. And I'm afraid that that was something that the Seventh Cavalry um, learned on that sunny afternoon on the, the hills, you know, along the Bighorn River and uh, Montana in 1876. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, it's it's interesting that I, I've tried to do the story of the Little Bighorn a couple times on this podcast, and it's it's the one that keeps that I keep putting on the back burner. I've, I've teased it a couple times, and it never comes to fruition for one reason or another. And I won't get into the whole backstory of it, but it's but one of the reasons is that I've I've wanted to make a priority the native voices. I have a very specific way that I want to tell that story, uh, and without getting too deep into it, I've I've talk to various writers and researchers and say, look, it has to be done this way. The native voices have to be included far more than they have been in the history books for sure. Uh, and then maybe some other sources too. So I have a really conscious idea and trying to pull that off is very difficult. Uh, but I, but I started hearing the way Henry Standing Bear talks about the battle in your book and clearly the recent level of research you did. And it started reminding me, yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to try to do with this. And that's why it keeps, it keeps getting delayed because, you know, there has, it really has to be done right at this point in time for sure. Well, it's a mountain to climb. I mean, that was the no big doubt. thing. I mean, you know, whenever I started thinking about, you know, the utilization of this in um, <clears throat> part of the storyline, like I thought, okay, first of all, you got to make sure you get it right. Because if you make any mistakes, there are enough, you know, Custer files and, and sitting bull files and crazy horso files like that out there that, you know, they'll eat you alive if you don't make sure that you get all the facts straight. Like, and so that's, you know, part of the battle there. And then the, the, just the sheer bulk of material like that to go through. I mean, the, the one thing that I've discovered over the, the number of years and the amount of, of uh, little bighorn books um, that I've read is, is there are a lot of really bad little bighorn books out there that, you know, and a lot of the older and ones movies. Just, oh, and they're horrible. Again, and then the only thing that can give them any kind of like, you know, competition for how bad they are is the amount of movies and television shows that are out there about the little bighorn that are horrible. Exactly. Have absolutely no resemblance to reality or what it was that actually happened. Um, and then some of those I was able to kind of lampoon um, during the, the Custer, uh, you know, uh, festival like at that. Uh, I can't remember. I think it's like Turner Movie Classics or something like that. That they're playing behind the bar at the Red Pony Bar and Grill, yep. as uh, Henry gives a counterpoint. You know, to all the bad movies like that have been made. So, and then you know that yeah. kind of brings in you know even the realities of you know the painting in question. Uh, the you know the the Custer's Last Fight painting uh, in itself is you know the key element of the book is incredibly historically inaccurate. 
um, yeah. in a number of different ways. I mean, you can just take the figure of Custer himself. Um, the scarf is wrong. The outfit is wrong. He cut his hair the night before. The hair, yeah. He didn't have sabers because it was an expeditionary force and they would make too much noise on the horses. So he didn't have a saber. I mean, and then you start working from there and you start looking that, you know, like the, even the, the geography of, you know, the little bighorn area in the painting is wrong. Um, the, 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 the village is on the wrong side of the river. Um, the, the mountains are not really shown appropriately like that. And it was kind of pointed out to me, um, over at the, uh, the, the center for the West, over at the, uh, the, the Buffalo Bill center for the West. It's quite possible that Cassili Adams got his idea since he had never been to, you know, the little bighorn area like that, that he might've gotten the idea for the geography from Buffalo Bill's uh, Wild West shows, that he just took the background from the Buffalo Bill Wild West shows like that and just included that. And his son stated quite plainly like that, that, um, that, that he actually had models come in in St. Louis to his studio, cavalrymen and Lakota warriors that would come in like that and he would, you know, paint them. And if they did, like uh, the cavalrymen came off quite a bit better than the than the uh, the Lakota warriors do who look like they might have arrived at the battle by way of you know Rourke's drift in Africa or yeah. you know the Seminole you know uh, Everglades you know and somewhere in you know Florida like because the headdresses are all wrong the, the 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 shields that they're carrying look like they're shields. Zulu warriors yeah. you know which is you know when you actually look at it historically since it was painted about 10 years after the actual little bighorn battle in 1876 that was the period in time of the zulu uprisings and in many ways you know there are a lot of comparison contrasts that can be made um, between the united states as this you know up and coming technologically advanced country that kind of got set back on its heels I mean, you got to remember that at the time that this battle was being fought, the White Sox were playing a doubleheader back in Chicago. And so the difference between the eastern portion of the United States and the western portion of the United States was very, very different at that period of time. But, you know, that it was being influenced also by what was happening over in Africa to the British, who were kind of being set back on their heels also by the Zulus. You did touch on something and you've talked about it. You're you're talking about it in some to some degree right now in the effect that the Battle of the Little Bighorn had not only on both sides who fought in it, of course, the the native peoples and the American side of the equation, but the mythology that it created, it helped create the mythology of both the West and the United States of America. What's your opinion on how that battle, and then as you mentioned in in the book, Libby Custer's PR campaign afterwards had an effect on the battle, how we view the battle itself, and then how it helped create the mythology of the West as we look at it today back 100 years ago, 140 years ago. Well, there's a resonance. <clears throat> there's a resonance that goes along, you know, with the fact that there's a lot of ambiguity involved in like, you know, what it was that Custer did and why he did what he did. And then there's a lot of ambiguity as to what actually happened, um, you know, because as stated, like, you know, the only survivor on one side was a horse, um, you know, that survived like it. And so, you know, and the horse was not available for comment as far as that was concerned. Like, and so, and then, you know, the, the, the native side, you know, they were a little bit concerned as rightly they should have been like that because they were kind of waiting, you know, for the, the boot to drop. Like they, they won the battle, but they knew that inevitably they were going to lose the war. Like that they were a nomadic people who no longer had any way to be nomadic. 
um, that the American government wasn't going to allow for that. And that was, you know, when they were trying to herd them all onto the, the reservations. Like, and so it was a major turning point, I think, you know, in American history, like with a lot of uh, ramifications like that, you know, that were going to, you know, resonate, you know, for the rest of the, the, the history of this country. And so, you know, you knew that it was going to be uh, impacting. There was no question as to whether it was going to be impacting. Um, and also you had some incredibly charismatic individuals that were involved with this, you know, not only dimension, of course, Custer like that, but also Sitting Bull like that and his predictions like that, that there would be a battle and that the, you know, the blue coats, the long knives, you know, mentioned, you know, for the, you know, the sabers that they carried um, were going to suffer a terrible loss like that. And the reason he saw this was because he saw these blue coats falling from the heavens, you know, with no ears because they would not listen to what had been told to them, you know, in these meetings before. Like, and then you've got somebody like Crazy Horse who was probably, you know, maybe one of the most incredible cavalrymen, you know, in the history of American, you know, in America. Like that he, he what he was able to do like that in battles, you know, such as the Battle of the Rosebud or the Battle of the Greasy Grass were just amazing. And then also even the view, you know, that that the natives, you know, had on this, you know, the the Cheyenne, you know, and the Lakota they didn't even include this in their winter counts. You know, I mean, you know, the winter count for those, you know, who in the audience who might not be aware, like they, they had these large buffalo skins like that. And what they would do, it was literally the, the calendar year um, for the tribe, like it to show, you know, the major events that had happened during the course, you know, of that year. Well, you know, the little bighorn battle didn't even make it on to, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, the winter count, you know, for that particular year. They thought of it as a kind of a messy skirmish that really wasn't all that important of a battle. And it was only after the fact that they discovered that, you know, that Custer was actually even involved in the battle. Um, so, you know, the, the, the viewpoints on all of these things, I think, you know, make for an ambiguity that, you know, does open for mystery. And, you know, I, I won't lie to you and tell you that I don't know the value of mystery, um, that, you know, whenever you can put that carrot out there to try and find out what it is that really happened um, during the course of a book, you know, whether it be um, the last stand or the next to last stand, like that it's an opportunity uh, to, to draw the reader in like that and get them involved with that story. And as you stated earlier, let them feel as though that they were actually there. Yeah, and I think you actually just touched on probably my favorite part of the book to get specific for a second. And this won't ruin anything for anyone, but the uh, a scene where Henry Standing Bear says some of the things that you just said, where Henry Standing Bear is is talking more about the native side, about the the look the Lakota and the Cheyenne not even realizing that a guy named Custer was on the battlefield. It just they that they didn't know that part of the equation, and this wasn't a big enough deal to them to even include it in the winter count. It was. It only grew in stature and had far-reaching ramifications long after the fact. That was fascinating to me. I don't think. I mean, I knew. I knew what the winter count was, and I. I but I didn't know those two little pieces that they didn't know that Custer was there. They didn't know that this guy was a, a general named Custer, and they, they that they didn't include it in the winter count afterward as a huge part of their history. So oh, that yeah. was fascinating. I love that that part of the book. So hopefully that's a good tease for people to go read it who haven't already. <laughs> well, a lot of it like is the credibility also. You have to always keep in mind that there were two factions there. And you know, an awful lot of the 7th Cavalry like in the US militaries is, has been written about and gone over with the finest finest tooth comb. Um, but then again, there's also the native voices like and I was fortunate enough to discover, you know, a number of anthologies like that because um, you have to remember at that period in time uh, the, these were tribes like that that their 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 major source of information was an oral tradition they didn't write things mm -hmm. down um, you know the winter count like it was 
you know, the penultimate aspect of their, their writing, like at on the history, but, you know, majority of the time it was, it was vocal. It was verbal, like it being passed down, for, you know, from generation to generation. And so I was fortunate enough to s- discover a number of anthologies where, you know, actual warriors who had fought, you know, in that battle, some of them as young as 12 and 13 years of age um, had fought in this battle, like that and was able to utilize some of that material into the books. And then also going up and talking to my good friends up on the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation and, you know, getting the stories from them that had been handed down, you know, from, you know, generation to generation like that. And the, the opportunity to include those in your books like that is just, you know, it's just too much uh, to try and pass up on. Like that, so Oh, yeah. To, to have the ability to go here first person stories, but obviously ones that have been handed down through the generations is, is an invaluable resource. That's, I would love to to do that at some point myself. That'd be fantastic. So when mm-hmm. I, I want to wrap up with, with one more specific question about this. And then of course we got to do the obligatory tease of the next book, which you're probably <laughs> damn near done with at this point. I'm working on it. <laughs> I know it's getting, it's getting closer. So the, the, the other thing that struck me as I, as I listen, as I listened to the book and I, as most people are probably reading it was that this was, very obviously a shift in tone from the previous book. This was much more lighthearted and, and fun and had some of those whimsical qualities. Was that a conscious choice based on the, the severity of the previous book? Or did it just develop as you started thinking about the characters who were going to be a part of this and it just flowed naturally? Well, I think that there's like a natural, you know, uh, propensity like it to, you know, to have the pendulum swing, you know, with the, the quality of, uh, of expertise as far as the, you know, what Walt and Henry would be talking about throughout the entirety of the book. It was, you know, kind of fun for me to put maybe a little bit lighter tone on this. And that was actually easier to do like it simply because there were so many native voices involved with this particular book. This was a joy to write simply because, you know, I mean, the majority of the book takes place, you know, up on uh, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation between the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation right there at the battlefield. And so I knew that those native voices were going to be back involved again. And those native voices for me are the ones that have such an incredible sense of humor. I mean, you know, when I'm talking to my good buddy, Marcus Red Thunder, or I'm talking to Charles Little Old Man, or any of my other, you know, friends up on the res, look at the the one thing that that they have that I think maybe gets, you know, forgotten about um, when people talk about, you know, the, the, the Native Americans is they never get as much credit as they should for the amount of humor that's involved in everything that they do. I mean, you know, one of my favorite quotes is the one from John Steinbeck, where he said, you know, the Indians have incredible senses of humor. Look, they've had to put up with us for 200 years, so they better have a sense of humor. Right, and we're, we're clearly running over it. Maybe your next interview is about to start here. So, so I'll just ask you for, for the, the quick tease. I, you know, I, we, we know, I think it's well-established that Lonnie Littlebird is my favorite. I love that guy, as you're talking about. He is the epitome of humor for me in the books. But I will just quickly, quickly ask for your little tease of what are we going to see next year with, from Walt Well, you'll see Lonnie again. Lonnie's got a, a double header here, like because uh, there'll be a lot more of the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in the next book. It's actually uh, a situation where, you know, we have a little bit of a plague going on um, in Indian country like that where, um, there are a lot of situations with missing women, um, native women who have like, you know, been uh, disappearing like, and it's kind of a horrible situation. Lolo Long, like at the tribal police chief, like, you know, gets in touch with Walt and Henry yep. um, about the possibility. There's a young woman who's on the basketball team of the lady, uh, the lady stars. And, um, the problem being that, uh, you know, th- there have been threats against her. She has a sister who's been missing like that. And uh, so Walt and Henry get called in like at kind of like, you know, do a little bit of bodyguard work. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, Walt's been in some tough situations before, but he's never been stuck on a bus with an entire team of uh, teenage girl uh, basketball players. So this may be Walt's uh, most toughest adventure so far, I have to admit. 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed that interview. We'll be back on our regular Wednesday schedule in two weeks with the story of Texas Ranger Frank Hamer. And if you're a member of our Black Barrel Plus program, you'll get the entire series one week from right now. A little gift right before the new year. We'll see you then. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.